Welcome friend. back, Peter. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Different kind of review this time around, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, this one was a bit of a, a long book. Yeah. Um, no, but it's very good. Mm. Um, okay, so podcast episode four. Yeah. Um, and the book is Black Box Thinking. So the subtitle that we have is Marginal Gains and the Secrets of High Performance by Matthew Said. And then there's a few different titles, it turns out. Mm. So there's black box or subtitles. It's black box thinking, black box thinking, black box thinking. But black box thinking, the surprising truth about success. And then also black box thinking, why most people never learn from their mistakes, but mm. some do. Um, yeah. Okay. Should we do a book summary? Yeah, quick one. The way I got to. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go for it. Um, no, it was, um, it's an interesting book. No, it was an mm. interesting book. Um, I'd really like to finish it. Um, I didn't get... Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, bear with me this time around. Um, didn't get that much in it. Um, rough month, but uh, yeah. Um, no, um, there was some interesting thing that uh, jumped out at me. Um which, uh, when you think about it, I think we usually ignore, you know. Um, um, and the one thing being how we treat failure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting that, um, as with many things, it always takes about um, takes some mentorship. You know, you just have to change your perspective on how you view certain things. And one of which is highlighted in this book is how we perceive failure. You mm-hmm. know, um, and I should say the. One section of the book that uh, caught my attention was um, they were talking about one of the wars and um, they were analyzing planes that oh, yeah. uh, that had returned. And um, when I looked at the image that they had showed, I had the same idea that um, the people also who presented this um, picture, like, oh, you know, if these planes came back, they took a lot of damage here. Yeah meaning that we should protect those areas. And later on, they said no. But if you actually think about it, the ones that got hit in the areas that have zero um, bullet holes mean that um, they're the ones that went down. You know, Mm. so it's... um, Having that shift to invert... Perspective. Perspective to say, you know, if the plane came back and that's where the no bullet holes then we need to protect that you know for it not to come mm. down like just the ability to identify that i mean to me it was mind-blowing and i was like okay like yeah you know you you think about like why was i on this page and like when you when they said that uh or you know the, i think he was a mathematician when he he, he recommended that i was mm-hmm. like wow like i never thought about it and but it was like very true you know um yeah so covering yeah. the the places that weren't hit is the is the solution is the solution <laughs> which is yeah very counterintuitive <laughs> it's it's obvious once you reason through it, it because yeah. okay the places that were hit they went or if if they weren't hit and they came back, it means, it that, means that it's because that place wasn't, wasn't hit. hit. That's why they survived. Yeah. And the, obviously that in, then leads to the conclusion that, oh, okay, 
those people w- that didn't come back must have been hit in that area. In that area. Whereas yeah. the initial focus is, oh, the, the bullet holes in the wings and this and that. Yeah. Um, those are the, the places where it's far, it's, we need to, to protect put or, the protection on because yeah, yeah. the planes that came back had bullet holes in the wings. Yeah. But then shifting that perspective and saying, oh, when they have bullet holes in the wings, it actually turns out it's fine. fine. You know, yeah. they can, they can still the, fly back. They can handle that damage. But you when know? you get a bullet hole through your body, <laughs> <laughs> then it's a problem. It's a problem, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that for me kind of summed up what I read, you know, to be like, you know, we kind of need to have an, I want to say like an outsider's perspective on certain things, you know, try to put yourself out of the situation and look at it differently. And I mm. mean, that goes about to some of the different things that they spoke about, for instance, you know, how failure in the medical sector is, is treated, you know, it's like it's mm. frowned upon. And as a result, you know, that's one area in which hasn't improved much as a result of um, um, kind of understanding why something failed. I mean, mm. they talk about, the poor feedback loop there is uh, when it comes to like x-rays, you know, how people misdiagnose patients from the x-rays, but there's never feedback loop later on to be like, listen, you actually misdiagnosed this patient. Um, let's reanalyze the x-rays. You know, it's just mm-hmm. one of the things that falls away. And as a result, you know, there isn't that improvement in radiology when it comes to um understanding um how failure can improve how they diagnose yeah. patients you know um and i mean the book speaks a lot about aviation all the sections that i read you mm. know how that's one field that has strived through um failure you know to be where they are now plans had to go down they had to critically analyze what went wrong mm. to kind of better improve their systems to where aviation is now. Exactly. Um, So I just think many sectors and many areas, and I mean us as human beings, I think need to kind of adopt that into our own lives as well, that Mm -hmm. um, we don't see failure as a bad thing. Not that we should condone failure, you know, we need to work our hardest to deliver what we need to, but in those moments where we make mistakes, you know, we need to be open to that... um, that feedback, you know, it might come across as criticism, but, it, you know, there is always constructive criticism. You know, we need to learn from some shortfalls. And, mm. you know, I think that will improve our lives in many aspects. Um, yeah. But, yeah, mm. yeah, you can go for it, I think. That's uh, my cool. two cents. <laughs> no, that was helpful. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, so the summary from our side is basically that um, Black Box Thinking by Matthew Said at its core is about learning from failure. Um, in aviation, there's the idea of the black box. Mm-hmm. So these are systems installed in planes that continually gather all kinds of information about the aircraft and its crew from the altitude of the plane to the words spoken in the cockpit. Um, in the event of failure, an abnormal landing or even a crash, the information gathered by the black, black box is analyzed to try and understand what went wrong. So rather than blaming this or that, the culture in aviation, kind of like you're alluding to, is one of learning from failure and improving based on what was learned. 
um, in large part, it's this culture that is responsible for the incredible safety standards in commercial aviation. Um, and that's, of course, as well, where the name Black Box Thinking gets, or where the book gets its name. Um, it's, in essence, the book covers a diverse set of stories about various people, industries, companies, policymakers, and more, learning, uh, looking at different ways that they deal with failure. So there's those that repeat mistakes because they fear failure or can't face the reality of failure due to some traumatic circumstance. And these are generally people with a fixed mindset. And he talks about this being stuck in a closed loop, not allowing feedback from the outside world mm. and especially not allowing feedback from failure. And so not learning from those failures, repeating the same mistakes over and over. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, there are those that are willing to learn from failure, taking in the feedback and adapting over time. So these are generally people with a growth mindset and they are in, again, what he calls open loop systems. So these are systems that accept failure as a normal part of life and then take uh, the feedback from that failure and learn and improve. And like we spoke about, that aviation is, mm. is a prime example of that. So the book's key insight is that success, even at a high performance, doesn't come from being a gifted genius, but rather it comes from a willingness to repeatedly learn from failure, mm. making marginal improvements that compound over time. And there's lots of different aspects and various things that the book touches on. But it, overall, we'll repeat it again and again, mm. learning from failure. It's yeah. very difficult, but but one of the, the key things. Yeah, it's the biggest takeaway. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so starting off, let's look at the chapter or the, the first sort of section. section. Mm. And that section compares the aviation industry to the medical field and how they approach different um how they approach failure in, in different ways yeah. and some of the things that they touch on there is um they give an example of a routine operation and um united airlines which 173 which is um yeah an, an airline that's sort of well known apparently in the the aviation sure. industry but um yeah it's a helpful example for from learning from failure so i think let's dig into that um yeah i don't know if you want to no, touch on um, some, some go for it and then i'll chip in with what okay. i need to add mm. cool so um i've got here a note but maybe before i do that um some background on these stories so the story from the medical field, I'm going to paraphrase most of the stuff I say, <laughs> yeah. so give me some lenience. Um, but essentially, the story in the medical industry goes something along the lines of um, a woman goes in for a routine operation yeah. and there's not nothing really majorly wrong with her. Um, and she goes in for this op, everything's kind of expected to go fine. But it turns out that when they are doing the operation, there's some small complications that come about. And then they run into another complication and then they run into another complication. And what ends up happening is that the patient passes away because they kept on running into these, these issues. But when the, the husband found out about this, he, it turns out, is from an aviation background. And so he he was used to this concept of not 
blaming people for what went wrong, mistakes happen in life, but rather saying what what actually went wrong (laughs) and trying to identify and see if there's anything that can be learned from that. And it turns out that in that procedure, what had happened, and again, I I forget the details, Mm. but what had happened was they ran into these um, issues at various stages. um, So they were trying to... um Incubator thing, so yeah. they airway airway was blocked, so mm-hmm. they kept trying to do um, different things, and I think one of them was to, I think it's a triectomy or something where the cut the the throat, the throat uh, yeah. um, and to be able to put the pop in. Yeah, yeah and um, what had happened was. Um, the nurse had alerted them that they're running out of time. Mm. But the doctors, since they were so focused, they thought um, they'd been at it for a few minutes. or mm. A fraction if, of the time they had yeah, actually been. Um, yeah. And as a result, um, when they made the call to um, stop the operation, it was actually a little too late. Her mm. brain had been deprived of oxygen for far too long. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, carry on. Yeah, no, I think that was helpful. Um, and then um, I think the key point there is that there was this distortion of time mm. and that's an, it's a, that's an issue, obviously. Now, um, in the aviation industry, they try to learn from things like yeah. that. Whereas in the medical industry, it's because of various factors that are very complicated and it's not like there's blame on individual doctors or mm-hmm. anything like that. It's a, a cultural issue. Yeah. And again, that's not, that's a few caveats here because it's going to sound, especially in the beginning part, it's going to sound like we're attacking the medical industry. <laughs> but again, this is about learning from failures. And so this is just an illustration. It's mm. not to say that the whole medical system is flawed mm. and, and this and that. And it's also not to say that the whole aviation industry is perfect. Um, but in summary, the, that idea of learning from failure and saying what actually went wrong there um and if if um they ended up listening to the the nurse yes. and realizing that the the distortion of time was was taking place then they would have been able to um do the uh, i can't remember the yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, that fancy <laughs> way. Was, yeah. um and then um the patient Probably would have been fine. Yeah. Sure, they would have had a cut in their throat, but mm. um, but yeah, in general, they would have been fine. And um, to learn from that failure. But if if you end up just being like, oh, you know, ah, uh, complications happen, and which is true, it's a mm. fair statement. Mm. But it also can cover up things that could have been learned from. Yeah. Um, and it's also very difficult in that industry as well because if you're a surgeon or something and someone dies at your hands, it's much more difficult to take that responsibility because it's, we don't want to believe that we're capable of making those kind of mistakes, Mm. but of course we are, Mm. but it's, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, as I said, we're not blaming doctors, but the the culture kind of just promotes people, um, kind of um, shifting the spotlight mm. to something else. You know, um, they don't want to be, like you said, if someone dies on the operating table, you don't want to bear that um, that guilt or responsibility yeah. that you, you killed someone. Mm. Um, so as a result, you know, it's 
or due to medical complications, you know, mm. but never did they dive deeply into what was the cause of that complication, you know. Mm. Um, and again, like you said, that's not saying that there's some anything wrong with medicine and aviation is, you know, the perfect system, but when something goes wrong in aviation, um, from what the book says, you know, is that they try to scrutinize that as much as possible mm. and see what they can do differently. Exactly. Um, you know, and I mean, you're talking about that one flight. The one thing that they said was developed from that was calling out every single thing that you're doing, you know, uh, as you're going through um, a situation, mm. you know. And I mean, that's something um, that later on apparently was adopted in medicine mm. as well, you know. Um, and yeah, I think the other thing is, um, and I don't think it's all, it's just a cultural thing. I think it's a very human aspect. Is the thing of hierarchy. I think one thing that mm. was highlighted was that um, the voices, uh, sorry, the nurse's voice wasn't heard. Not because yeah. she wasn't said saying anything, but it was more like we know better, you know, and that problem also existed in um in aviation where the captain thought you know he makes all the calls but never listens to the first officer mm. you know and as a result you know that's a fundamental issue across different boards where it needs to be addressed that just because you're at the top it doesn't mean you cannot learn from the bottom you know mm. i think that's one thing that comes in the way of a lot of people that they don't want to be um, corrected by, you Authority. know. Oh, sorry. The yeah. superior doesn't want to be yeah. um, called out by the Someone junior, other than, you yeah. know. Uh, um, so, yeah, um, that's um, a mental shift <laughs> that needs to happen, you know. That's, I mm. guess that's what learning from failure is, you know. You need to be able to... Um, Accept that you're making a mistake from anyone, and then you respond to that accordingly. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe what I'll do is I'll contrast that quickly with that the the plane, mm. and we kind of touched on a, a mm. few aspects, but just because I think it's a helpful example. Mm. So, um, what you were talking about there was with this. Uh, airplane United Airlines 173 I think what they what happened there was um, the the plane uh, needed to go and land or it was coming in for a normal landing mm. everything was sort of fine and, and that and then when they were going in for the landing the landing gear according to the systems was not deploying mm. um, and so they the, the pilots and them started trying to sort of reason what's happening and trying to resolve the issue um long story short they they got really like they just couldn't figure it out and time kept on passing by and keep that in mind that time passing by aspect very similar to what Mm. happened in the in the medical example and i think he contrasts that really well in Mm. the book um and time keeps passing by and what ends up happening is that they so focused on the landing gear not deploying that um, they lose track of time 
and the fuel starts depleting. Mm. And I can't remember if it was the engineer or the co-pilot. I think it was the engineer was calling out um, the fuel readings at different intervals mm. and, and things like that. And then eventually um, what they were doing is they were just busy circling around a, a, a nearby a city, I guess. I mm. can't, can't remember. Um, and they circling, circling, fuel depleting. And then the engineer is now starting to get a little bit frantic, mm. but he also doesn't want to sort of scream at the, mm. the pilots and things like that. And the pilot's extremely focused on trying to figure out what is happening with this landing gear. And eventually, when it's almost too late, what happens is that the pilot um, decides, okay, now it's, we have to land the plane. Mm. Fuel mm. is pretty much out. And so they don't have enough fuel to make it to the runway. So they find the nearest sort of opening and then they land there I can't remember what happened if they they hit anything. Yeah, it was a crash landing because I mean, I think there were like six casualties. Yeah, there was a few casualties. I think one of them was the unfortunately the person calling out the the fuel readings yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and later on in sort of the the I guess verbal integration. Yeah, the the um, verbal discussions and investigation and that. What what they do is they obviously just do normal discussions with the, the pilots and ask them about what happened and, and things like that. And the pilot essentially said, you know, I don't know what happened, but um, he he was taking guesses at like, it could have been the fuel, well, it yeah. could have been this. And he was thinking like the fuel depleted so quickly, it, it maybe there was a leak in the plane mm. or something. And a few different reasons. And they were logical reasons mm. because from his perspective, the fuel basically just vanished. Mm. Um, but it turns out after doing the further investigation, taking the black box data and all of that kind of stuff, it turns out that the landing gear actually was fine. Yeah. It was just a faulty reading on the... Yeah, the, the, the light uh, did not illuminate uh, yeah. that indicated that. Um, yeah. And so that's an interesting thing. But what's more interesting is that they they realized that the fuel depletion was completely normal. And again, it came down to that idea of almost time dilation mm. where you just get lost in this focused mm. world. And long story short, they learned from that and it became part of regular practice to um, follow a bunch of different steps and things like that. But one of the things that came out of it was assertiveness training mm. to basically make sure that the um, people that are communicating with the pilot, when there is challenges, that they feel that they can assert those different things. I think it was from that where the assertiveness yeah. training came Yeah, from. no, correct. Yeah, and it's interesting how that applies to the nurse example mm. um, and how those failures, same learning from failures can actually be applied in these in these different ways. So yeah, it's a really great comparison the way mm. that they do it um i don't know if you want to touch on anything there's two parts that are on the book that i'll quickly read through but if there's yeah. anything you want to mm. touch on before no yeah, okay. nothing else. so um the one part is um page 17 they say in a sem seminal book after Horam, nancy berlinger a health research so this is going back to the medical side um, a health research scholar conducted an investigation into um, the way that doctors talk about errors. 
It, tr- it proved to be very eye-opening. Observing more senior physicians, students learned that their mentors and supervisors believe in, practice, and reward the concealment of errors. Berlinger writes, they learn how to talk about unanticipated outcomes until a mistake morphs, morphs into a complication. Above all, they learn not to tell the patient anything. Mm. Now, of course, that is maybe a, quite a harsh view of it. I'm sure that in many cases it's true and in many cases it's not true. But what's interesting is that there's various different aspects to it but one of the problems is of course when they're covering it up they they therefore can't learn from failure Mm. and because it becomes part of a culture to do that that negatively impacts the progression progression and things Mm. and there's examples later in the book of of people pushing against that and trying to learn from failure to improve patient safety Mm. and i think it's a virginia state hospital or something like that that's Madison, yeah, something Madison, rather. Something. Um, and they do an incredible job there. And there's a guy that, um, I think he had a personal trauma or something related to, um, not learning from failure. And no, his father died at the age of 55 or tender age of 55, and then he's the one that, um, thing started all. Oh, proposed implementation of investigating when something goes wrong and um in the sense of again through i think an aviation example then drafted this whole thing where i think it was called like an alert system in the hospital or something where if there was a mistake Mm. people needed to alert this sort of pipeline and then yeah like and it also meant you could call out people. <laughs> so it, it wasn't yeah, uh, not you just reporting, but someone else could call you out on your mis- mistake. Yeah. Um, and then apparently when um, they initially implemented it, they only got a few hits. Uh, not many people were reporting up until something happened. And I think a doctor came forward uh, and publicly to acknowledge a mistake that they had made and that from that like that shifted the culture completely the soil rise in mm. people using this um alert system and people actually doing something and i know some in the book they said there was um an issue with, uh, I think it was either ventilator or one of the medical equipment in terms of um, yeah, one of the switches. La- and switches. I think they correlated and, uh, with that switch mm. was uh, the manufacturer of that switch was the exact manufacturer of the um, the switch and the light that was in the plane that, <laughs> that went down. <laughs> you know, so like, you know, those subtle yeah. correlations in just how the world works. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think I think that's a, a excellent point to raise because I think that the switch example there, from what I remember, is that on some of the ventilators, the you, you switch it up and it turns it on or something like that, mm. and on other ventilators you switch it down and it turns on or, or no, does yeah, something. Th- th- that was a different thing, <laughs> but yeah, it was a dial to regulate the flow of fluid. Oh yeah, the yeah, body. yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> Memory is way better than mine. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you put it in the upright position, it was fine. But if you 
turned it, uh, I think, 90 degrees clockwise instead of um, what it was set to deliver. I think it was delivering either more or less mm. of the fluids. Yeah, but on some it. machines it was the opposite. Of a, yeah. yeah. Mm. And they're the same, basically, the same machine, just from exactly. a different manufacturer yeah. or something. Mm. Um, and then I think another example from the medical industry that they started learning from was um, based on those reports, they were getting, I can't remember, I think it was weird issues where um, they were giving patients the wrong treatments or the wrong medication or something. And it had to do with the color of oh, the, yeah. so they, they had color coded bands. So that it was they put a medicine, I think it was uh, do not resuscitate. So yes, yes, way, that's it. it you're right, color you're coded right. and the one nurse was color blind. Yes, exactly. <laughs> she was putting the wrong bands on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they were just colored without any text on them. And mm. then eventually they colored them. And, and put text, text. Yeah. yeah, which I mean is a it's a super obvious, super simple yeah. thing. Mm. But, but it was it slipped through the cracks up until you know this exactly. feedback loop was actually introduced. Mm. Yeah, which yeah is very cool. Um, okay, then going to the, the aviation example. So um, it says yeah, and it's part of what you were mentioning earlier. This is now a well-studied aspect of psychology. Social hierarchies inhibit assertiveness. Mm. Um, we talk to those in authority in what's called a mitigated language. Mm. So that's touching on that, that um, assertiveness training idea. And then in the, the aviation um, example, the, the tank leaking, it says, yeah, the leak was not in the tank, but in McBroom's sense of time. Mm. Only through an investigation from an independent perspective did this truth come to light. In healthcare, nobody recognized the underlying problem because from the first person ex perspective, it didn't exist. That is one of the ways that these closed, loop, uh, closed loops perpetuate. When people don't interrogate errors, they sometimes don't even know that they've made one even if they suspect that they may have. So, yeah, I think that's a great, great sort of overview mm. to those, those issues and the contrast between these two yeah. different industries. Cool. Okay. I don't know if there's anything else you want to touch on there. No, um, I think um, that's me all, all booked out. <laughs> then the next section is cognitive diff dissonance and, um, specifically looking at things like wrongful convictions. Mm. Um, and just so, for some background, the book's got here. Cognitive dissonance is the term Festinger coined to describe the inattention we feel when, among other things, our beliefs are challenged by evidence. So that's page 81. Mm. Um, yeah, so this section starts to touch on a bunch of different things related to cognitive dis dissonance um, and uh, often what they what they talk about in this I think it's this chapter is the idea of um, people who are convicted of crimes that they didn't commit and then uh, later on they look at DNA evidence mm. and and that and realize that these people, the person actually didn't commit the crime. Um, but what's remarkable as well is we start to see later in this, in this confronting complexity, or sorry, in the, 
cognitive dissonance section that they start talking about people getting or their innocence gets proven even though that they were convicted and maybe in prison for mm. 10 years and then the people who sentence them basically just say no no no, no that yeah. person's i can't tell you why but, but that person is definitely guilty, guilty. Yes. and that's that element of cognitive dissonance mm. and festinger the the guy who coined that term he he did a series of studies that end up essentially showing this idea of what we expect people to do is basically just saying oh, okay well mm. obviously that I was wrong there, cool. Mm. But what ends up happening is people have this cognitive dissonance and mm. they, they basically can't deal with the fact that... They could have been wrong. Yeah, they could have been wrong. No, um, it seems like we attacking careers here, but um, <laughs> it does say that uh, one group of people that never accept the fact that they could have been wrong, um, <laughs> in air mm. quotes, uh, is actually lawyers or people in the law field or, mm. or judges because it does say like you're saying um okay as much as i read uh, of that section was um the boy that was wrongfully convicted just for the fact that uh, he had episodes of um or, or outbursts of some sort yeah it was um, so, like psychotic episodes yeah, i think yeah um yeah. and when he came out that he was actually um innocent you know he was actually in jail for like another i think five or six years six years um yeah he was convicted of rape and then dna evidence later proved innocent and then Mm. yeah Uh, and um yeah from the time that that came to light that he was innocent um they went back and forth for six years because people just couldn't come to terms with um the fact that the that he was innocent. He was innocent. Yeah, they, they didn't handle the evidence correctly enough to convict the right thing. And I mean, in that section, it talks about how people in law enforcement also struggle with the fact that they can be wrong. Hmm. You know, um, and this is just not. And again, like we say, it's it's, it's sounding like it's mostly a culture thing. This goes f- as far as the person that makes the arrest the person that conducts the um, investigation to the proceedings in in court you know all those people stand by what they end up believing after they've had the different sides and mm. can never ever think they could have made a mistake so if later someone says listen your judgment here was incorrect they'll stand by their judgment regardless, you mm. know, even in, in the face of evidence that clearly suggests otherwise, like mm. in the case of um, that boy, yeah. Yeah, because it's too overwhelming to accept that you could have been wrong in this instance because mm. you, uh, in the police example, you've sentenced someone to to spend years in prison mm. when they were innocent. Mm. So you, you almost can't fathom that yeah. that you could do something like that or make a mistake like that. I think there was a line that uh, was mentioned there that you might not be 
guilty of this crime, but you're guilty of some other crime, which I thought was so yes, ridiculous. Yeah. It's you know that justification <laughs> yeah. of saying, "Look, I don't know what what happened yet, but, yeah, you, but, have but you, you, you have to be guilty." Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "That's yeah. just yeah, insane." <laughs> But I mean, I'm sure we do it in various ways. I mean, there's so many examples that they give here in the cognitive dissonance side. There's the the police side of things, but there's the the cult side of things, and there's just various ways that we shape our beliefs. Um, and hopefully, we don't do them in extreme ways, but I'm sure that we do it in various ways. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting part in the book um, on page 83 where it basically talks about reframing evidence based on our existing beliefs. And they do, uh, a, yeah, an interesting study. So I'll, I'll quickly scan through that. Um, they say here, it's only when we have staked our ego that mistakes of judgment become threatening. That's when we build defense walls and deploy cognitive filters. And then it goes on to say, an experiment led by a psychologist, Carl's Lloyd, volunteers, or in, in that experiment, volunteers were recruited who were either adamantly in favor of capital punishment or adamantly against it. Jumping a bit further down, um, it goes on to say, both seem to marshal well-researched evidence about the issue. But here's the thing. One report collated all the evidence that called into question the legitimacy of capital punishment, while the other articulated the evidence that supported it. So basically, they have they have a bunch of evidence or papers and things like that saying in favor of capital punishment, these are all the reasons, and then they have another set of papers against capital punishment. And the whole experiment is designed so that both of these paper, both of these sets of researchers, it's very clear and it's very like convincing on both sides. Mm. Um, and then it goes on to say, from reading exactly the same material, the two groups moved even further apart in their views. They had each reframed the evidence to fit their pre-existing beliefs. Festinger's great achievement was to show that cognitive dissonance is deeply is a deeply ingrained human trait. The more we have riding on our judgments, the more likely we are to manipulate new evidence that calls them into question. So the moral of the story there is to be very cautious when when our beliefs in various ways it can be religious beliefs it can be beliefs in in evidence beliefs in the way that you approach things when our beliefs are attacked not to and not even necessarily very forcefully attacked Mm. um it could just be attacked in the sense of presented with new evidence when that happens we need to resist the urge to reshape that evidence to fit our existing beliefs Mm. and we need to try and force ourselves and it's i think extremely difficult but we need to try and force ourselves to learn from that new mm. evidence um but our default human trait is to reshape that evidence to fit our existing beliefs so yeah cool, cool. then there's another um somewhat related story which i think is really cool um and it's essentially about confirmation bias um, and it ties back to the that idea of cognitive dissonance. Mm. So um, 
yeah, a quick comment beforehand is that um, it's helpful to realize that avoiding failure in the short term, and this is from the book, avoiding failure in the short term has an inevitable outcome. We lose bigger in the long term. Mm. So this is a quick little side quick, caveat. You know. <laughs> um, but then, break. yeah. <laughs> um, then it goes here to say, um, so this is page 111, that confirmation bias is another of the psychological quirks associated with cognitive dissonance. The best way to see this or its effects is to consider the following sequence of numbers. Two, four, six. So now what you need to do is you need to try and uncover the underlying pattern in that sequence. And then what happens is most people playing the game come up with the hypothesis pretty quickly. They guess, for example, that the underlying pattern is even numbers ascending sequentially. Okay? And other possibilities, of course. The pattern might be even numbers, or the third number is the sum of the first two numbers, and so on. So those are other examples that it could be, but pa people come to the conclusion of what that pattern is about, mm very quickly, and then um, they get given the chance to essentially um, try and confirm their hypothesis. And what happens is, um, the key question is, how do you establish whether your initial hunch is right? Most people, when they're given that opportunity, simply try to confirm their hypothesis. So if you think that the pattern is even numbers ascending sequentially, they will propose 10, 12, 14, and then this gets confirmed, um, and they will propose 100, 102, 104. After three such tests, most people are pretty certain that they have found the answer. Yet, they may be wrong. If the pattern is actually any ascending numbers, their guess will not help them. They had, if they had used a different strategy on the other hand, attempting to falsify their hypothesis, rather than confirm it, they would have discovered far quicker the, the reality. If they had said or proposed 4, 6, 8, which fits the pattern, they would have found that their initial hunch was wrong. If they had followed up with saying 5, 2, 1, which doesn't fit, they would now be pretty warm. So, um, and uh, the guy Paul Schumacher... Um, he says, the pattern is rarely uncovered unless the subjects are willing to make the mistakes. Mm. That is to test the numbers that violate their beliefs instead of doing the opposite. So um, this is the whole idea of that confirmation bias in action. If we decide to rather than look at the contradicting evidence and assess that, and try and take that into account and say, let's test our beliefs. Mm. Um, then that's more likely to result in us finding out the truth. But what most people do is they just use that confirmation bias. They say, oh, okay, it's... Um, they don't test the, the, the negative case. Um, and so they don't find mm. out the actual pattern. They find out part of it, but they don't find out the, the true pattern of just... It's any ascending numbers. It doesn't doesn't matter. Um, they add these other additional things. Yeah, which I think is a really great example. 
Ähm, ja. Cool. Then um, another interesting example. I don't know if you want to touch on anything else there. No, um, nothing else. I think it'll be a lot of you as we cool. go on. <laughs> no, that's chilled. Um, okay, so cognitive dissonance. So this was another interesting one. Um, just talking about judges. So um, I'll read it quickly. Uh, it's from page 128 at the bottom there. So consider an experiment um, not on juries, but on judges over a 10-month period. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to say this guy's name, but Shai Zanger, a neuropsychologist at Tel Aviv University and colleagues, analyzed the parole decisions of eight Israeli judges. And I'm skipping a little bit ahead. Um, judges are supposed to be rational and deliberative. They are supposed to make decisions based on hard evidence. But Danzinger found something quite different. If the case was assessed by a judge just after he had eaten breakfast, the prisoner had a 65% chance of getting parole. But as time passed through the morning and judges got hungry, the chances of parole gradually diminished to zero. Only after the judges had taken a break to eat did the odds shoot back up to 65%, only to decrease back to zero over the course of the afternoon. Judges were oblivious to this astonishing bias in their deliberations. Criminologists and social workers were also unaware of it. But why? Because it has never been analyzed. Now, that is like wild to me. I remember <laughs> yeah. the first time I heard it. I don't think I heard it in this book, but mm. I was just like, this is, this is nice. Yeah. Yeah. And it shows just how human most of the systems are. Yeah. Mm. And if we don't care to learn from failure, you can make unfathomably like bad decisions, decisions. that have massive ramifications for yourself or other people. Um, Simply by not understanding what's causing it. Yeah. <laughs> and having those biases, but not uncovering them mm. because you, you're not analyzing the facts. Um, and granted, it's very difficult to do that. Mm. But yeah. It's uh, quite a thing. Yeah, no. That's for sure. Yeah, it is. A, yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay. So, going on to the next section. Confronting complexity. Okay. So, this section deals with the fact that in the real world, life is very complicated and, and that. And what we... What we end up doing is we we basically look at um, complexity and we, we choose to sort of ignore the difficulties there. Um, and we try and pretend, or we, we end up pretending that we live in a world that's not complex. Um, and we try and make judgments and do things based on the fact that the world is, is not complex when in reality it is. So... Um, They have some interesting examples here, um, and one of them dealing with that confronting complexity is the nozzle paradox. Okay. So, in Unilever, they needed to create a nozzle, design a nozzle, um, and the, the purpose of the nozzle is to create, I think it's washing powder. And in order to create washing powder, you basically blast out 
this, I suppose it's like a liquid at a very high pressure. And then the, the water part separates from the, um, sort of particles Mm -hmm. and the particles fall into, I suppose, a vat and then you have your washing powder, but they wanted to improve the efficiency of these, these nozzles, um, and get it to basically produce the, the, uh, washing powder. Um, and so what they did and Unilever at this time, I think was quite a wealthy company. And so they hired a bunch of like really clever mathematicians that understood fluid dynamics and all kinds of um, fancy things. Mm-hmm. And they, they then said to these mathematicians, this is what we want to do. And yeah. the mathematicians sort of came up with these theories and um, took their fluid dynamics understandings and all that into play. And then they came up with these nozzle ideas and when they tested them, they didn't work very mm. well. And then they deliberated and had these um, sort of meetings to discuss possible options and et cetera, et cetera. And then it says here, almost in desperation, Unilever turned to its team of biologists. These people had little understanding of fluid dynamics. What they would not have, they would not have known a phase transition if it had jumped and bitten them. But they had something more valuable, a profound understanding of the relationship between failure and success. They took 10 copies of the nozzle and applied small changes to each one, then subjected them to failure by testing them. They then took the winning nozzle and created 10 slightly different copies and they repeated this process. They repeated again and again. After 45 generations and 449 failures, they had a nozzle that was outstanding. Progress had been delivered, not through a beautifully constructed master plan, there was no plan, but by rapid iteration Mm. or rapid interaction with the real world. So, yeah, often we think that, again, going back to the complexity idea, we often think that the world isn't as complex as as we think Mm. um, or as it is. And we think that we can come up with theories that are perfect and that cover every different aspect of of a of the real world situation, and it turns out in most things in life it's just not like mm, that. Yeah, impossible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so we we what we need to learn to do is not always, but much more than we expect is to, instead of saying we can jump to some perfect answer, if we have that right theory, mm. we need to iterate through, through things. Yeah. And the solutions. And, yeah. Yeah. Put those things in contact with the real world and say, how does this actually do? Mm. And try out different scenarios and then learn from that and improve based off of that. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really helpful idea to, to understand. Um, yeah. So... There's other um, examples as well where um, they... Uh, so, I'll touch on two other ones. Cool. The, w- the one is uh, making ceramics. So, I won't read it, but the essence of it is that on page 152, they start talking about... Um, or, I think it originally comes from the um, another book, The Art of... The, the book is Art and Fear by David Bales and Ted Orland. So they 
they get these students, I think, to um, design ceramics and they get one group to to basically focus on designing a pot or whatever it is mm. and they say you must focus on designing the perfect pot i think it's a pot but mm. whatever it is <laughs> and you must focus on designing the perfect pot the other group is given the task of saying you need to design as many as you can you don't oh, need to worry mm. about quality you mm. don't need to worry about that kind of stuff just make as many as you can um and the interesting result is, as we kind of would now start to expect, but you wouldn't necessarily expect this in in the real world or when you, if you haven't sort of thought through and had the discussion mm. we've just had. But what it turns out is that when you're making these ceramics and it applies to a bunch of mm. different things, the the quality came not from the group who made one and focused on mm. quality. It came from the group that made many, mm. many, many ones. Because they they kept on refining their processes and they whereas if you focused on just making that one, one perfect, you never learn from failure. Yeah. So. I mean I think there's a similar example in I think four thousand weeks. Um about uh, I think it was a photo- I think it was a photography lecture gave an assignment that one group takes one perfect picture and the other goes wow to take a bunch of different pictures. I don't know if you I remember. can't remember. <laughs> Sounds possible, very possible. <laughs> but yeah, it's a similar thing. Yeah, that, uh, the ones that um, we focused on one, like, the, the, but actually didn't do as well as the ones that mm. um, went out and took a whole bunch of. Uh, for, so it's uh, a yeah, similar ties principle. Back very yeah, well, yeah, yeah. That again, like you said, you. You take a picture, you're like, oh, this lighting isn't great. What can I adjust to make it better? Mm. And all that. And I guess it's the same with ceramics. You know, you either you had more water when, you know, more than the one thing. And, mm. you know, um, yeah, which you never learn if you're just going to work on one. You know, you never know if it'll burst once you put mm. it in the furnace, you know. And yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's true. Learning from failure. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll say it over and over again, but it's it's true. Um another way of learning from failure. So it's um tying back to this confronting complexity is there's an example where they um and again I'm gonna paraphrase it here, but they I think it was a, I don't know if it was a state or city or something that wanted to reduce um smoking mm. um, and try and improve health in that way and, and various things and so what they ended up doing was they reduced the amount of nicotine in cigarettes theorizing that if they reduce the nicotine in cigarettes then people will smoke less because mm. it's going to be less addictive backfired terribly yeah. because what ends up happening is that people end up smoking more, more to, be- get. to get that nicotine <laughs> and I mean that's what happens if you if you put things into the real world and you say, okay, let's see what happens. Mm. Those are the crazy weird things that, that will happen. No one will think of that on the fly. You know? Yeah. You, only after you've put it to practice where you're not like, okay, this is a good or bad idea. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so that's that's been um, very interesting. Mm. Um, okay, so then going on to another idea. 
there's um we spoke briefly about the scared straight program mm. um and that is um an incredible story and he gives a, a really convincing and um good account of it in the mm. book where the the general idea is you have these group of kids um and you want to try and make sure that these kids don't commit serious crimes and mm. things like that so it started off, as far as I understand, with um, a group of um, sort of somewhat rebellious kids that mm. had done misdemeanors and, and things like that. So maybe like robbing shop or mm. breaking into a house and stealing something. And what they did with these kids is they took them to this um, serious prison where there's people that have, are in for murder and rape mm. and this and that. And they basically tried to scare these kids straight. So the prison guards would shout at the kids and say all kinds of vile things mm. and stuff. And the, the kids, the way that he conveys it in the book is that these kids go in thinking like, oh, I'm, I'm way too cool for this. Yeah. I don't really care. Nothing's going to worry me about me. this mm. and affect me. And they end up coming out of the, the prison basically traumatized mm. um on the way home one of the kids even like throws up because he's so like traumatized and, and that. that's the the story that that he sort of lays out mm. here and they have a bunch of documentaries and the um the whole idea of the scared straight program it's it becomes a program that um they start rolling out to a bunch of different um regions mm. and that and the the narrative around it is so powerful because you want your children not to commit serious crimes mm. and things like that. And so exposing them to what prison is really like and the scary, crazy stuff that happens there um, would hopefully scare the kids straight. Mm. And what ends up happening is they through what what he refers to in the book as the narrative fallacy um basically telling a story and making it sound convincing mm. um and a bunch of people including most likely if you and i had watched it we would have thought the same thing yeah, yeah you know scared straight program it's great bring it to our mm. um, area and, and that as well um and it gets rolled out like i said and it turns out that after doing randomized controlled trials on these on the program, it actually doesn't work. Not only doesn't it work, it actually has the opposite effect. So um, the, the book says here um, to glimpse how often how to glimpse the often mind-bending gulf between what we think and what we know. And what we really, what we think we know, and what we really know, um, let's revisit the scared straight program. And he goes blah 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 blah, and then it says here, scared straight program is a metaphor, but above all, it's a warning, and it's a warning about that learning from failure, mm. because the the scared uh, straight program basically got these these kids the complete opposite effect of, mm. of what they, they wanted. So, so I'm going to jump back and forth here very quickly. But um, 
they say here in a meta-analysis, um, when, when the Campbell colla collaboration arrived at the scene, this, uh, this is a global non-profit organization devoted to evidence-based policy. They conducted what's called a systematic review. This is where the data from all the randomized trials are collected into a single spreadsheet. By pooling the results from all the individual trials, seven were used in the so-called meta-analysis, a systematic review represents the gold standard when it comes to scientific evidence. This is the ultimate failure test. Forgive me if you know what's coming, but the results were emphatic. The scared straight program doesn't work. It increases crime. And some research in indicates that, it, that the increases can be as high as 28%. The scared straight was in many ways ahead of its time. Unlike most social programs, which collect no data whatsoever, it actually sent out questionnaires and gathered statistics. But with the as with the medieval bloodletting, observational stats do not always provide reliable data. Mm. Often, when you test, you need the counterfactual. So that's the, the you can think of it like the controlled group mm. and that kind of thing. Otherwise, you may be harming people without realizing it. Um, yeah, it's just that contrast for when we get given a narrative and we have observational statistics, like, yeah. such as um, going to the parents of those kids and saying, oh, how's your kid doing? Mm -hmm. And then they report back and they say, no, my kid's doing, doing great. But then it turns out that in some sense, of course, the parents would say that. Yeah. They want to believe that their kid is doing better. Yeah. And so the observational statistics and the narrative can skew the actual reality. Yeah. And so as with, as he mentions there, as with bloodletting, we need that randomized control trial in order to determine what is the reality. Mm. So just quickly touch on the idea of bloodletting so bloodletting is in the past they used to drain people of their blood and then people used to think that this was a great medical intervention because what happens is um observationally people would get better yeah. um but as we discussed a little bit earlier people the they aren't taking into account like not the people that died exactly yeah so without taking those people into account, you, you have a skewed perspective mm. of, of reality. Um, and so long story short, randomized control trials came about and then in the medical field, they realized that oh, bloodletting rather than helping people is actually killing, killing people. people. Um, but to realize that is really difficult and to actually change that is even more difficult mm. because people believe that it, mm. it works. And now, obviously, to us, we, we say, oh, of course, it doesn't work. <laughs> Why would you think that that works? But, um, yeah, reality isn't always that simple. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if you want to add anything else. No, um, I have nothing to add. <laughs> cool. Okay, then the next one was the small steps and giant leaps. So we also talked about that a bit. Mm. Um, so I don't know if you want to talk through the the peaks and things should we talk yeah we that? can go through that you can go cool. for it and okay so um basically um the the chapter is called or the uh the section 
is I think it's called the part is called small steps and giant leaps. And then there's different pieces in there. They talk about marginal gains. They talk about how failure drives innovations. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a really um, helpful story about um, marginal gains in this Brit- British cycling team. So um, there's a British, uh, long story short, the British cycling team had none of them had won any serious races like the Tour de France and things like that. I think Atomic Habits had this story as well. Yeah, they had a very similar was, similar yeah. one, yeah. Mm. Um and the this team had been struggling or a bunch of cycling teams had been struggling and, and no one really won and British cycling was kind of like a oh, whatever yeah. kind of thing. Mm. And then they got this this guy on board, um Railsford and and he managed to get the team to compete internationally and to end up winning various things. Mm. I, I don't know. I think they won the Olympic gold medal um, in various things. And um, yeah, basically be, went from being cycling nobodies to, to being the, like the, the pinnacles. Yeah. Um, and they say here, how did Brailsford conquer not just one cycling discipline, but two? These were the questions I asked him over dinner at the team's small hotel after the cycle tour, of, um, after a tour of the cycle facilities. His answer was clear. It was about marginal gains. He said, mm. "The approach comes from the idea that if you break down a big goal into small parts and then improve on each of them, you will deliver a huge increase when you put them all together." Um, yeah. So, just that general idea of of marginal gains mm. I think it's helpful to keep in mind for, for various obvious reasons but um, there's also the idea of um, so there's these two pieces of the puzzle if you want to separate it out like that the one piece of the puzzle is taking these small steps to get to to some point mm. but the problem is and he, they convey this well in the book when you're doing the marginal gains approach, you can only get so far. Yeah. And there's this other aspect where we need, it's almost innovation. Yeah. And you need to make these giant leaps. Or more like uh, practice, if you, you may. You know, in the sense that when you get to a certain point, you don't just stop there. Mm. You know, um, you kind of have to be, I am here, it doesn't mean... I mean, you can stay there, but um, there are two effects that may happen. So they're going down <laughs> or you're going up. Mm. And the only way to go up, and again, with your marginal gains, um, I'll call it a theory, it's that the small changes and tricks and the practice, you know, uh, the whole, if I do this differently, that's then what helps you reach your peak. Mm. Uh, you know, you... You don't reach your peak by doing nothing. You know, you don't have to, you don't do the initial work and get to your peak. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know, um, you have to keep on iterating and, and keep on just pursuing that learning mm, from failure. Mm, and yeah. just going back to that uh, British cycling team, you know, if um if, yes, like I said from Atomic Habits, it says they started with I think 
using lighter bikes, but that only got them so far. Mm. But I mean, they went all up to even like changing the suit they wear, you know, and yeah, all those things, you know, like just vacuuming it, the rooms before you um, know, they yeah, enter them, you know, um, just those small, you know, like just feeling bad, like you know, you, people underestimate that you. The thing, again, like you said, the big changes happen by significantly changing something. It's literally a tiny tweak or something, mm-hmm. you know? Like, for instance, like, that whole judges thing, you know? Like, who would have thought that having a meal, you know, betters your chances yeah. of, you know, um, behind, before a parole board, you know? Yeah. Like, it's stuff like that. So even if the cyclists, like... You can practice once a week, you know. Okay, that's all well and done. But you'd be like, okay, let's practice every day. You know, it might not be that you're doing anything different, but just that discipline and consistency. I think mm-hmm. men needs that consistency and also being able to have that feedback, like you say, like this hasn't been working. We've been doing this mm. for so long, and this is where we rank. What can we do differently to yeah better achieve? the best potential mm. for myself, yeah. And, yeah, and, and all of those aspects are talking about, so, again, the, the title of this um, part is Small Steps and Giant mm, Leaps. Okay. Mm. And all of that that we've been talking about now is talking about the small steps. Mm. Um, and to look at the giant leap part, they give a great example or a great illustration. I wish I could show everyone the, <laughs> the picture. Yeah. But, the the pictures on two oh three and they have this picture and you can almost imagine it as as these mountains and there's two little mountains the one is slightly smaller than the other mountain and you can picture yourself as being on the first mountain and you're not quite at the top of the mountain you're somewhere sort of in the middle of the mountain and those marginal gains those small steps what they will do is they will help you to summit the top of that mountain that you're on. But there's another aspect, which is if you keep on if you keep on going and you keep on improving, at some point you reach the pinnacle of of a certain peak, mm. right? Um, but innovation might be something along the lines of a completely different peak. You have to have a completely different approach to yeah. doing something. Yeah. Maybe um, originally, I don't know, this probably won't be a great analogy, but maybe you originally are writing um, mathematical equations on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And then over time, you realize like, oh, I could actually, like this is very slow and it takes me, um, days to calculate things that I need to calculate. And then over time, you you start to explore different ideas and you might improve a lot on be, being super efficient at doing those sums. Mm. But without coming up with some completely different innovation mm. like a computer, and that's not the way that the computer came about, but <laughs> just as an analogy, without coming up with a completely different innovation like a computer, there's only so much that you can do in terms of performance you you can there's a certain limit but when it comes to innovation the giant leaps that 
that takes something else. Mm. And what he talks about here in the book is that surprisingly, it's the same sort of underlying principle, learning from failure. Mm. So without having run into that failure, you don't, the failure in this, in my example, Mm. fictitious example, um, of struggling to calculate more than a certain number of calculations Mm. in a day, when you run into that limitation, without that limitation, there wouldn't have been an incentive to come up with this novel idea of the computer. Mm. Again, a fictitious example. (laughs) Um, And so what we start to see is that marginal gains are extremely helpful to get to some pinnacle of some point. Mm. But we need to be able to take these creative leaps and in order to do that, we can also use that principle of learning from failure. Mm. There's a bunch of th- other things that he touches on. For example, things like the idea that the innovation um, is contextual as well. Because what you'll notice is things like Einstein and them coming up with their theories. People often think, oh, if he came up with his theory 300 years before, we would have been so much better mm-hmm. off. But the reality is... He couldn't have really come up with that theory because, earlier that is, Mm. because there was a lot of foundations that had to be done. Mm. And importantly, the foundational work was done and it got us to a certain Mm -hmm. point. But when that point started failing, that's when, so when, say, for example, Mm. Newton's theories and stuff Mm. started failing to answer the questions that we were asking at that time, then it starts to point us in the direction of saying, okay, this is fading, but let's try and explore this or that. Mm. And, and to, to overcome those, those little, to jump from the one mountain to the other in the, in the image, what the important piece is, one, contextual, but the other is connecting disparate or different ideas And so what you'll notice is that very often when people have innovation, Mm. um, jumping from that one peak to a completely new place, it's when they're joining ideas from completely different industries in novel and interesting ways to solve an underlying problem. Mm. Um, Yeah. So looking at that, the great example that they use here is James Dyson. So guy creates vacuum cleaners and does a bunch of interesting mm. things. Um, and he, with his um, Dyson vacuum cleaners, his sort of great innovation there, and the reason why he became so successful on Dyson is basically like a household name and it's mm. known for some of the best uh, vacuum cleaners in the world, is because he ran into a failure of existing vacuum cleaners. Mm. So... He, it was his chore to do vacuuming when he was young. And he had, I think he had like a very powerful vacuum cleaner. But even with that vacuum cleaner, after a moment, five minutes or something, yeah. the, the vacuum cleaner suction power drops like crazy. Long story short, it turns out it's because there's bags in vacuum yeah. cleaners and the dust the, clogs, clogs up the bags. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the normal dust. It's these fine little particles of dust that sort of almost seal off the bag and that blocks the suction power and then he had been bugged by this for many years and he was one day going to get wood cut and he 
saw the uh, I don't know what's the sawmill thing. Yeah. Um, and what he saw is that there was all of these wood filings flying around, but then at the top of this chimney, somehow there was no wood filings. Like all of them had uh, somehow stopped mm. um, going out. But the interesting thing that he noticed is that unlike the vacuum cleaners, these things work all day and they mm. don't stop. Mm. And it turns out that you can... He went back home and built cardboard mock-ups and things like that and tested them out where this you you basically channel the air in certain ways that it slows down certain particles and, and that. And the idea of a cyclone mm. is what solved his problems. And he was joining his problem of vacuum cleaning with this solution <laughs> in a completely different industry, industry yeah. together to solve the problem. Um, and it's that idea of connecting these different things to be able to make that leap from the one to the next, to the next um, hill mountain um, is a, a very powerful idea. Mm. Um, yeah. But it's fascinating things there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where ideas come from, man. Yeah. strangest places <laughs> yeah. yeah and being open to learn from those different mm, places mm, is a necessary thing yeah rather than just fixating on one specific yeah. um mm. yeah area it's more like promoting living out outside the box mm. in a way you know um don't confine yourself to one sector essentially yeah um, you don't know where you draw inspiration from. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Dyson, I mean, he has a lot of amazing um, stories and examples that he, he gives. Mm. But I find his story quite interesting as well because of the fact that he made these connections and he's done a bunch of interesting things. But then... Um, and he's, and I mean, he, he talks about how he, to, to get to that original mm. um, vacuum cleaner, he had to go through 5,000 iterations and he ran into a bunch of different mm. issues and all kinds of different, different things. And at one point he had to, so he had one cyclone at the time, um, but then he was finding that certain particles and things like hair and stuff would still go, get mm. through the system. And he ended up realizing he could add and that's where the dual cyclone thing comes in and he could add another thing and then mm. solve this issue and that. And he kept on running to new issues and solving them and carrying on. And the amazing part about that is that it starts to surface this, this concept of not only do you need to be able to learn from failure and, and have resilience in the face of failure... But in order to actually end up solving the problem, you need to have, in some sense, almost like a grit to just mm. grind through. They, they mention another book, literally by mm. the title, Grit, um, sort of touching on that. But you have to have this grit to end up solving that problem and realizing that without that grit, 
what you end up is just having a patent mm. that you you file the patent and you sort of leave it there and then it's cool but you make nothing of it mm. but if you have that grit with that learning from failure joining these different ideas and having that creative inspiration mm. then you end up being able to create the product mm. and the 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 example that he gives here is, is also quite wild. He says, um, good ideas are not... So it ties back to a few different things about the innovation in context of different mm. ideas and times and history and all of that. Um, and then Dyson stuff. And then it says here, uh, as Johnson writes, good ideas are not conjured out of thin air. Dyson is well aware of this aspect of creativity. He says, every time I've gone for a patent in a particular field, someone else has gotten there first. He says, I don't think that there's been a single time in the thousands of patents that are filed um, where we were the first. With the, dual, with the um, vacuum cyclone, there was already a number of patents lodged. But this raises another obvious question. Why didn't the person who came up with the original idea for the vacuum cyclone go on to make a fortune? We noted earlier that we tend to overlook what happens before the moment of epiphany. But, if anything, we are even more neglectful of what happens afterwards. This is a serious oversight because it obscures the reason why some people change the world while others are footnotes in, the, in a patent catalogue. So it's the combi combining those ideas of not just... Um, learning from failure and reaching those summits the persistence you yeah. know, that comes with facing failure you know i think again talking about culture shifts you know don't let like failure demotivate you but rather you know be a stepping stone or motivating factor to try and achieve um yeah you know what you're trying to achieve <laughs> mm. yeah. um yeah there's a lot of a lot of little things that that come into success and failure. Yeah. Um, but I think that the book touches on a lot of helpful aspects to it. I mean, there's. I mean, I don't know which book we read, but it kind of alluded to the fact that you need to fail a few times before you succeed. Yeah, only a few. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Many times, you know. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And there's a great example as well in the the world of education. Um, so. Um, this comes from a different book. It's referenced here, but it comes from the book Adapt by uh, Tim Harford. And I think we should also read that book okay. at some stage. It seems like a really, really interesting one. Um, and this is regarding improving education. So I'll, I'll again sort of run through it quickly and, and paraphrase things. But um, what in, initially they did in this, in this trial was they were giving out free textbooks to um, this uh, underprivileged area. Um, I can't remember where it was in Africa or something like that. They were giving these um, textbooks to this underprivileged area, thinking and assuming that giving these textbooks to them is going to help them with education. And... Obviously, again, thinking about observational data and, and just purely using that alone, mm. most likely what you would get is, yeah, I mean, 
it's great that we have these books, et cetera, et cetera. And then again, thinking about the narrative fallacy and falling into that, um, it's a nice narrative. Mm. We're giving textbooks, we're doing good things. Yeah. Um, I'm putting my money towards that. It must be helping. I mean, of course, textbooks would help, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what they decided to do was actually to do a study on it. And it turned out that, and it's this this group of economists that, that do the study, and they, they found out, okay, it didn't work. The textbooks don't really improve the, gra- improve the grades. I, I think they probably did um, a uh, RTC um, randomized control talk. RCT randomized control trial, um, but they found out okay no this giving the book strangely enough doesn't work. After probing a bit deeper, it turns out that English is these people's third language, <laughs> so the books weren't really helping. <clears throat> so they came up with a new idea. They decided to give them visual aids. So instead of using books, rather just give put the money towards visual aids. Again, um, they do a bunch of tests and things like that and they find out no this isn't actually working either um, which again is very interesting because mm. again the narrative would have been like of course it will work like mm. they couldn't read that makes sense mm. of course oh, okay um long story short that didn't work either and they tried they started thinking outside of the box joining those different mm. ideas and piecing things together and so what they did was they gave them deworming tablets and the deworming tablets ended up actually having a significant result because it turns out that in that area worms and things like mm. that was a it was a big problem and it would cause people to be overly tired mm. and all kinds of things and so rather than giving some direct educational it thing yeah. it turns out that deworming <laughs> is the answer a, to an education problem yeah. Um, and that's wild, mm. but it just shows you how, how I feel like I've used this word a lot today, how powerful it is to l- learn from failure and be resilient mm. in trying to really drill down and saying, does what this the, actually work? And also understanding what the real issue is. Because mm. we're so quick to be like, oh, there's a problem. Let's just find the solution. Here's the obvious solution. You know, done. but without actually understanding what yeah. is the root cause. Mm. You know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we have a lot to learn mm-hmm. <laughs> in in terms of how we can approach failure mm-hmm. and and yeah, improve on on these various aspects. Okay, then um the l- sort of second last section is um the blame game. So yeah, I think Looking at that, um, and again, we talked about it earlier. When we think about what is helpful and constructive in trying to get some um, group of people or company or something to behave in a certain Mm. way, um, we often think that pinning blame on the people that did the wrong thing is the solution. And pressing down on them that's gonna solve the problem and they give a great example there of the the social workers so what ends up happening is um these uh there was a situation in the news where um social work 
the, the, there was abuse of a child. Um, I think the child was killed by uh, the parents and a brother or something mm. like that. Um, and then that the social worker that was assigned to them basically didn't somehow something didn't work out there. Mm. I can't remember if the social worker was actually to blame or not. But the the point of the story was the social worker got pinned with a ton of blame. Mm. And the media, as the media can at times do, can be helpful at times, but at times it can take these stories and twist them like mm. crazy, basically put so much public blame on the social worker that um, what ended up happening was social workers in that area started quitting and and stuff because they were worried that if they make any little mistake that um that now they might be um publicly shamed Mm. and get taken to prison or this or that and so what i can only assume the public and media thought that they were doing by pushing the blame on this person is trying to point out fault and say this is bad we need to do better than this which seems reasonable but putting yourself in the shoes of the social workers, that's traumatizing. And mm. it's like, oh my gosh, like I can't do anything wrong mm. here or else I'm going to be majorly in trouble. So people start quitting. People start be, being less involved with mm. their social work so that they have less culpability and all kinds of things. And so it ends up backfiring rather than helping. And they give a bunch of different examples in this um, blame game chapter where... Um, pinning the office, I mean, pinning uh, the blame on people, you would think in, in, for example, a company, someone does something wrong. There's, uh, I think the example that they use is in in software development, there was um, issues with this program um, and it was some financial trading program and it lost the company a bunch of money. And naturally, software systems are extremely complicated and Mm. software developers are responsible but at the same time there's only so much that a human being can mm. can understand and so what ended up happening was the the board or the the CEOs and that I don't know exactly who it was pinned the blame on the software developers because it was an easy thing to do yeah. also from a public perspective it helps to sort of say oh no it's look guys we're dealing with who's at fault here mm. they're going to be fired and stuff like that Internally in the company, some people are like, no, no, these people shouldn't be fired because, look, software is complicated and this and that. But they went forward with the, the being, mm. put it, pinning the blame on the software developers and basically thinking, okay, well, if we get rid of these people that make the mistakes and stuff like that, or if we put pressure on them to be perfect, mm-hmm. then it will solve our problems mm-hmm. and our software will be perfect. perfect. Mm. Of course, it didn't work out like that as we would now realize, um, that was one major incident that they ran into. Later on, they ran into another six or seven major incidents because now there's no ability to learn from failure Mm. because now if you actually do make a mistake, and it's a genuine mistake, Mm. not a purposeful, neglectful mistake, you're not going to be like, yeah, I made a mistake because you're going to be pinned. Mm. And so you end up not sharing anything, which means all of the small little issues 
get hidden under the mm. rug and bigger issues arise. But if we don't do that, if we don't play the blame game, but rather just have open, honest discussions about the failure. Yeah. Things would be different. Yeah. goes a long way. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Then, lastly, is the creating of a growth culture. So there's not too much because um, we've already been through a lot of it. Mm. Um, but in essence, just the general idea of redefining failure. Yeah. So taking it from this thing of bad, don't fail, mm. you you can't fail, to being like, okay, humans fail. How can we learn from mm-hmm. those failures yeah. and be open about those yeah. failures? And we need to, as human beings, in our families, in um, our Up companies, mm. all kinds of places, in the policies that um, are made. So it's not just like you and I, it's policymakers, it's global organizations, mm. it's our small little companies that we work for need to accept that failure is a part of the thing and not be neglectful and things like that, but be open to the fact that people fail, mm. people make mistakes and learning from those mistakes is the way forward. forward yeah. um, otherwise, we just end up doing bloodletting mm-hmm. um, and it seems like it's working, it seems like it's fine, but actually it's yeah. killing people. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you very much, James. Yeah, some concluding thoughts. Yeah, no, so... Um, yeah, I think um, I'm trying to challenge myself a little bit more as well. Uh, be open about failure, you know. And, mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, there's no point reading and not actually applying. So I'm actually trying to take that leap myself. You mm-hmm. know, to, I mean, especially at work, you know, if you make a mistake, you know, say this is the mistake I made, I need assistance. Oh, you know, when you know that you failed a few times, don't just put rocks against rocks expecting a solution, you know. Mm-hmm. Be able to say, listen, yes, you paid to do this, but at the same time, like, if you can't do it, it doesn't mean you don't know. It just means that you just don't have the best way out of that. And someone might have failed in a similar manner and succeeded eventually so rather ask you know um, mm. so yeah just to not be so hard on ourselves when we feel yeah, i think that's uh that's one thing you know trying to shift that culture that failure is bad you know yes failure is bad but try to see what good can come from failure itself um, i mean i would almost say that failure isn't it isn't bad it's bad, just a yeah. natural part of things and in some senses, that shift is to say, rather than seeing it as this negative thing, seeing it as this thing that we can learn from. from yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's, those are my thoughts. And thoughts. yours? Um, yeah, I'll basically just end off with um, uh, maybe two quotes here. So one is to leverage the power of failure. You have to be resilient and open. In other words, you have to have the right mindset as well as the right system. So I think touching on that resiliency is is also key to to we can't it's not like there's gonna be one or two failures. Mm. You're gonna run into thousands yeah. and thousands and thousands and thousands, thousands. of failures. <laughs> and so being willing to face that mm. and embrace that and being like, cool, this is an opportunity to learn mm. rather than oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Um shifting from that 
uh, fixed mindset to that growth growth mindset, the yeah. closed loop to the open loop. Yeah. Um, that's the one thing. And then the last thing I'll end off with another quote is this again, super helpful, uh, super obvious, especially in light of all the things mm. we've discussed, but this is the paradox of success. It's built upon failure. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. We will chat again. Cool. Cheers. Cheers.